When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 95, The Dardanelles, Part 1. The Great War, with its horrible attrition amid the trenches, continued. But so, too, did Churchill's desire to win it. Because it was clear, the army on either side of the conflict did not have the means to overwhelm the other. To be sure, both sides were inflicting heavy casualties, but there was no overrunning of one position and then another, with one side pushing its way towards victory. Besides, all losses were being replenished with an ever-incoming stream of young men, and that constant need to fill the gaps in the line would cause Kitchener, the Minister of War, to hold back men from a second front along the Dardanelles, which would in turn, and in time, caused the end of Churchill's command of the Admiralty. Winston believed that, as the lines in France had stagnated, Germany was most vulnerable to their north. Accordingly, he crafted plans for an attack on the island of Borkum in the North Sea, just twelve miles from the German coast. If it could be taken and held, a staging area for an invasion was theirs. He also wanted to destroy the locks within the Kiel Canal, or at least the vessels it held. Somewhere along these lines, he believed, the German flank could be turned or routed. So, with this view more or less worked out, the First Lord paid a visit to his Prime Minister. The meeting lasted a long time, as Winston, besides explaining his view of a northern front, waxed poetically about the future fighting in this war and, of course, his part in it. Asquith later wrote, Winston, quote, implored me not to take a conventional view of his future. Having, as he says, tasted blood these last few days, he is beginning like a tiger to raven for more, and begs that sooner or later, and the sooner the better, he may be relieved of his present office and put into some kind of military command, unquote. Asquith's reply was, of course, that the man and his current responsibilities could not be separated. This saddened Winston, as he again thought out loud about all those future commands, the armies being assembled, and all which would be led by, quote, dugout trash, unquote, and, quote, meteorocrates, unquote, who had been raised with obsolete tactics. This, of course, was in comparison with himself. But history would show and in the very near future, that the man sitting across from the Prime Minister had the ability to envision the larger picture, how each part affected another, and had the means to see beyond what currently, in military terms, existed in the world. For at least fifteen minutes, Winston went on in this vein, and Asquith, despite himself, enjoyed the demonstration. 
Quote, I much regretted that there was no shorthand writer within hearing. He is a wonderful creature with a curious dash of schoolboy simplicity and what someone said of genius, a zigzag streak of lightning in the brain. Unquote. But as the politicians were the one who had allowed the current situation to get to this point, the military men were not now simply going to let them direct the war. They blamed the civilians and held up Antwerp and specifically Churchill as an example, and the British people believed them without question. If questions had been asked, the people would have found out that only 57 Britons had been killed, with another 158 wounded at Antwerp. Whereas, by the end of 1914, just over 95,000 British sons had been killed in France. After Antwerp was occupied, the Germans, having reached the coast, then tried to turn the Allies' flank. Joffre saw this coming and asked the British for help. Winston replied by having the Royal Navy bombard the Germans' position from the sea, which caused, in large part, for the German plan to fail. Then the Allies tried to turn the Germans' flank by throwing in masses of men, but they then failed. The war now became one of trenches, of dying men in the thousands, just to gain a few feet or yards of enemy territory. The ability to maneuver had slipped away, and again, the defensive weapons for each was superior to those for offense. The men were now exposed to poison gas, bombs from airplanes, and life within the trench, which meant living among rats as well as their own urine and feces. But war, according to the dictates of the day, was about killing the enemy. So, the Tommies and Poilu lined up along a trench, waiting for the moment their officers told them to go up and over and charge the enemy. The officers, looking down at their wristwatch, a new device, waited for the scheduled moment. Sometimes a trench or two was overrun. Most times, they weren't. But the price either way was the same. Thousands of lives lost in no man's land. An average day on the Western Front saw the loss of, on both sides, just over 2,500 men killed, over 9,000 wounded, and almost 1,200 who went missing. And who's to say which ones were the luckiest? Desperation and despair visited everyone connected in any way to the war. Winston wrote to Clementine, quote, what would happen, I wonder, if the army suddenly and simultaneously went on strike and said some other method must be found of settling the dispute? Meanwhile, however, new avalanches of men are preparing to mingle in the conflict, and it widens and deepens every hour. Unquote. Asquith wrote to his mistress on December 30th, quote, I am profoundly dissatisfied with the immediate prospect an enormous waste of life and money day after day, with no appreciable progress. Unquote. Others in the cabinet felt the same way, but there was a difference. They were all depressed. Winston felt challenged. This was something to overcome, not to give into. And he believed he had come up with something that might get the job done. The Allies needed to dig their trenches as close to the enemy as they could, and then rush up and over, covering the relatively short distance before all the men were shot down. But the difference was, this time, 
They would be behind metal shields, perhaps, quote, pushed along either on a wheel or, still better, on a caterpillar, unquote. His other idea, but along the same lines, was to have the Rolls Royces he bought covered in armor. Perhaps they could carry planks and men. They could drive up as close as possible and put planks down over a trench, allowing the men to walk over them and get in behind the enemy. But there were too many flaws for the war office to consider this. Still, Churchill was grasping at something. The project of some kind of metal shield was about to be pigeonholed forever, when an army colonel stationed at General Headquarters in France heard of the idea and envisioned how to fix the planking problem. He contacted Maurice Henke, the secretary to the cabinet, and he contacted Churchill. The next step was a memo from Winston to Asquith, dated January 5, 1915 to, quote, fit up a number of steam tractors with small armored shelters in which men and machine guns could be placed, which would be bulletproof, unquote. The, quote, Caterpillar system would enable trenches to be crossed quite easily, unquote. The Caterpillar was the name of treaded vehicles. The memo was sent to KFK, who gave it to his ordnance general. He dismissed the idea, but it came up again in February. This time, keeping things closer to home, Winston had Captain Eustace Tennyson D'Ancourt, an admiralty engineer, work on the, quote, landship, unquote, and incorporate caterpillar treads. Things moved on from there. The first meeting about the landships was held on February 20th at the foot of Winston's bed, as he was down with the flu. A Colonel Swinton wanted the operation kept mum, so the word was put out, that water tanks were being built for Russian troops, so the word tank was used when discussing the weapon. The prototype tank was to be built by Fosters of Lincoln. On March 9th, Winston was shown the designs. He approved, and of course, wanted it completed forthwith. Soon after, the first landship was seen crossing the Horse Guards parade ground. Few were impressed. The clunker was dubbed Winston's Folly. But at least the First Lord was trying. Everyone else was just watching the list of casualties lengthen. So, if there were to be no new visionary weapons, then a new front was needed. Again, Borkum was looked at. But most others now had eyes on the eastern Mediterranean, specifically the weakening Turkish Empire. So, operations were considered in Salonika in northeastern Greece, Syria, Gallipoli, and the Dardanelles, which separated Europe from Asia. In fact, this could have been, by now, a done deal for the Allies. As the war opened up, Greece's pro-British premier, Venizelos, offered not only an Anglo-Greek alliance, but also to send 50,000 men to Gallipoli, thus holding it for the Allies. But Foreign Secretary Gray, believing British commitments were stretched as it was, said no. Besides, he also believed he could revisit the issue later. And now that time has come, let's pull out our rather dusty mental map. Picture in the upper right-hand corner the Black Sea. This empties out from its southwest corner through the 19-mile-long Bosporus into the Sea of Marmara. On the western side of the Bosporus is Constantinople. 
Now, the Mamara itself empties out through the 38-mile-long Dardanelles, also known as the Hellespont, into the Aegean Sea. The peninsula to the west of this waterway is Gallipoli. Keep in mind, all this is happening in a southwesterly direction. So, one starts at the top right corner of the map, but ends at the bottom left. As the Dardanelles is relatively narrow, if one controlled either side of it, in this case for the British, the western side Gallipoli, which was at the time being held by a small Turkish force, the entire passage could be controlled. And if you were to keep going in that same southwesterly direction, you would come upon, in a very short time, the island of Lemnos, which factors into the story of Churchill's downfall. Now, before war was actually declared by the belligerents, Churchill already had his eye on Gallipoli. He wanted plans drawn up to take it, which he believed would keep Turkey out of the war. But Foreign Minister Gray believed if the plans became known, this would bring Turkey in to the war against them. So, no preparations were made. But now that Turkey was in the war against them, Churchill worried over Egypt. So the First Lord and the First Sea Lord Fisher examined shelling the Turkish forts along the western side of Gallipoli. Fisher said it could easily be done, and it was. And only ten minutes into the attack of Sed El Bar on the very southern tip of Gallipoli, a lucky shot from a British warship hit the store of shells for the Turkish guns, and the secondary explosion destroyed the entire structure. So far, so good. But the Dardanelles fiasco, which would prolong the war and ruin Churchill's career, went something like this. On November 25, 1914, the War Council met for the first time. And with this first meeting, Winston, according to Council Secretary Henke's notes, proposed attacking the Gallipoli Peninsula. But Fisher, who wanted to retain focus on the North Sea and France, asked if Greece could be persuaded to occupy it for the Allies. But Secretary Gray spoke up and said that, no, that was not possible. Because King Constantine's German wife harassed his grace whenever war was mentioned against Germany. Thus scolded, the king withdrew Premier Venizelos' suggestion in regards to Gallipoli. And so ended the first chapter of the Gallipoli tragedy. But Winston was just getting started. His blood was up. Quote, I have it in me to be a successful soldier. I can visualize great movements and combinations. Unquote. The First Lord continued to bring up the campaign to the Prime Minister, who wrote to his mistress on December 5th, and she will factor heavily in this story. Quote, he wants to organize a heroic adventure against Gallipoli and the Dardanelles, to which I am altogether opposed. Unquote. But just shy of Christmas, 1914, Winston had his mind changed for him. He still believed a front in the east was the only way to shorten the war, but as the troops were not available, the plan could not succeed. So it couldn't be moved forward. To be sure, others had their own plans for a second front. Lloyd George wanted 100,000 men to be sent to Syria or Salonika. Henke wanted an advance on the Balkans. But now, Winston's latest note to the Prime Minister reverted back to Borkum to set up an invasion against northern Germany. 
What they all had in common was to stop the mindless slaughtering of their men, who were dying at a faster rate than the Germans in France. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. For Christmas, the Prime Minister received gifts of other memorandums from various cabinet members, but the gifts didn't stop landing on his desk with the advent of Christmas. No, the pile continued to grow into the new year. But in the end, it was the Russians that determined the direction of the war in early 1915. Just as the French and British combined, the Russians, on their own, had by now lost a million men. Also, their supplies and ammunition were running low. And now, the Turks were pushing in on the Caucasus. If this continued... Grand Duke Nicholas, running the war for Russia, told the main British observer he would have to send men south to meet this threat, which meant fewer men fighting the Germans. The observer immediately took his point. This would free up more German troops for the war in France, and Kitchener had his hands full already. This had the makings of a disaster for the Allies in the West. So KFK, the war minister, was brought into the fray, away from his obsession with his trenches, and forced to look at a larger map. After looking over the strategic implications, he replied, Surely, a front or demonstration was needed along the Dardanelles. To which Winston replied, Yes, but for it to mean anything, to have any value, troops were needed to land and hold what the Royal Navy would win. Excited, KFK went back to the War Department to find those men. But his staff unanimously told him every soldier was needed for France. They were simply losing men at such a rate that if they were not immediately replaced, the Germans would then be able to overrun their lines. So, no men. So, no Dardanelles. Early that January, the War Council met over and over anguished over their losses of men in France, and asked themselves, was there no other theater that could relieve the pressure? On January 8th, Kitchener opened the War Council's latest meeting with ominous news. A new German push was in the offing in France. They didn't know the exact date, but it was coming. 
The tension in the room reached a fever pitch. Kitchener still had the floor. He then told the men he could only think of one place that could make a difference, and he was asking for their support. Not their opinions, their support. And that one place was the Dardanelles. He went on. This action would be in cooperation with the Navy, and would, if successful, re-establish lines of communication with Russia, take care of their concern about the Caucasus, perhaps draw in Greece, maybe Bulgaria, maybe Romania, and allow wheat that was being held up in the Black Sea to reach Allied troops. Secretary Henke voiced his support first. The Dardanelles would also allow a line of communication for an army if it was sent against Austria. The Danube could then be used to take the fight to the Germans. But before a wave of excitement could build, Churchill asked if there would be supporting troops. Kitchener said, no, this was to be done by the Navy alone. Then, the First Lord said, it could not be done. With this door closed, Winston kept his mind focused on the North Sea. That is, until January 12th. This was because of what happened between that frustrating meeting and January 11th. Turkey was now being led by Enver Pasha and his young Turks. The leader and his supporters were cruel, bungling, and did not give a fig about their country's glorious past or their historically rich cities and monuments. The angry young men made it known that they would destroy Constantinople, St. Sophia, Hagia Sophia, and the Blue Mosque if the British ever approached in force. This group was also as incompetent politically and militarily as they were indifferent to their country's treasures. However, there was one military genius among them, Mustafa Kemal. But because he hated the Germans and said so publicly, he was banished to a remote station to command. Gallipoli. After the latest and resultless meeting of the War Council, Churchill met with his senior admirals to get their opinion of an attack on the Dardanelles without infantry support, and, not surprisingly, they were not for it. But the upside to any positive action in the East dripped with rewards, and was, besides, imperative to the Russians. So Winston broke down the basics and tried to make the pieces fit. First, any ships used for Gallipoli had to be older vessels. The newest and best had to remain in between the German fleet and the home island. As it turned out, there were older ships available, if only because Winston had set aside money within the Admiralty budget for the upkeep of such ships. Next, Winston wanted the opinion of someone in the area, someone who breathed in the sand from Gallipoli and the salt from the Dardanelles. And that person was Vice Admiral Sackville Cardin, in a wire whose tone would become commonplace in the future war with Hitler. Winston wrote to Cardin, quote, "Do you consider the forcing of the Dardanelles by ships alone a practicable operation? It is assumed that older battleships fitted with mine bumpers would be used preceded by colliers or other merchant craft as bumpers and sweepers." Importance of results would justify severe loss. Let me know your views. Unquote. And Cardin's response changed the war and Winston's life. 
The Vice Admiral replied on January 5th that the Dardanelles could not be rushed. He, as the man on the spot, had worked out a four-stage plan for such a contingency and offered it to the First Lord. First, the defenses at the entrance of the South had to be taken out. Next, the waterway would have to be cleared of mines up to the Narrows, which is just below Constantinople. Then, the forts along the Narrows could be leveled, which would free a fleet to sail up the Mamara towards the capital, Constantinople. Electrified, Churchill took the memo to his sea lords, and they responded in kind. In fact, Fisher offered up the new dreadnought, the Queen Elizabeth, for this operation. Its 15-inch guns had yet to be fired. So enthused, Winston wired a reply back to Cardin, quote, Your view is agreed with by high authorities here. Please telegraph in detail what you would think could be done by extended operations, what force would be needed, and how you would consider it should be used, unquote. The answer, when it came back on January 11th, was staggering. Needed were 12 battleships, 3 heavy cruisers, 3 light cruisers, 16 destroyers, 6 submarines, 4 seaplanes, 12 minesweepers, and other various supporting ships. With this material, Cardin proposed to steadily advance up the Dardanelles, destroying the forts on either side, and taking control of Marmara. Gallipoli, the peninsula on the western side, would be kept free of Turks with constant patrols. The Vice Admiral ended with, he believed the operation could begin on February the 1st. Churchill took this possible war-changing news to the Prime Minister and KFK on January 12th. Besides believing that he had found a way to make a difference, Winston was buoyed by Fisher's support and the idea of adding the Queen Elizabeth, quote, firing all her ammunition at the Dardanelles forts instead of uselessly into the sea, unquote. The next day, January 13th, Winston, the Prime Minister, and KFK met with the entire War Council and Sir John French, the commander of British forces in France. After other business was discussed, Winston rose and put forth Cardin's plan. According to Lloyd George, quote, With all the inexorable force and pertinacity, together with the mastery of detail he always commands when he is really interested in a subject, unquote. The plan was now before them. The shelling of the forts, the demining of the waters, controlling the Dardanelles, and hopefully destroying the Gobin. According to Hinckley's memoirs, entitled The Supreme Command, quote, The idea caught on at once. The War Council turned eagerly from the dreary vista of a slogging match on the Western Front to brighter prospects, as they seemed, in the Mediterranean, unquote. In fact, the decision was unanimous. Winston liked it. Kitchener liked it. Asquith the same. The conservative Arthur Balfour, invited to the council as an elder statesman, was equally for it. The French, when they heard, thought it splendid and offered up four battleships. K of K said, if the first part, the bombardment of forts, did not go well, they could simply pull the plug. Little harm done. Still, the flaws were there on day one. How could a navy take a peninsula? How could a navy conquer a city? The truth was, though not known at the time, and that was another flaw, they wouldn't need to. 
the Turkish people were ready to rise up against their cruel leaders. Again, this was unknown in London, but it showed the British were operating without knowing all the facts. Always a danger. For the next week, Churchill and an ad hoc Admiralty Council worked on the details, sending questions to Cardin many times a day. The plan was coming together, and each page of it soon had a green F written across it, put there by the elder First Sea Lord. Though his pen slashed across the page, his heart was not in it. Fisher's fear of weakening the main fleet to bolster this eastern adventure grew daily. And there's a good chance his mind was not altogether right during moments of the planning. Six days after the decision was made, and he had been one of the assenters, Fisher wrote to Jellico, commander of the home fleet, who was for the Dardanelle campaign, that the British ships were, quote, all urgently required at the decisive theater at home. There is only one way out, and that is to resign. But you say no which means I am a consenting party to what I absolutely disapprove. I do not agree with one single step taken, so it is fearfully against the grain that I remain on indifference to your wishes." Unquote. This tirade was followed up by Fisher's tears spilling on Hanky's shoulder the next day. Again, a possible sign of senility. Winston, of course, had no idea of Fisher's real feelings on the Aegean expedition. The first sea lord had been beside Churchill in every action taken, though never spoke up. But the older man wrote again to Jellicoe on January 21st that he was against this, and, pulling out a destroyer flotilla and an Australian submarine from the mission, and that it seemed Kitchener was coming round to his way of thinking, which made all of this a complete waste of time. Really, what was the point with at least 200,000 troops to put on Gallipoli? But his argument was poppycock. Kitchener was told, when the plan was approved unanimously by the War Council, that Russia would be donating troops. But what the War Minister was never told, and honestly should have asked, was how the troops were going to get there. The Tsar's forces couldn't get through in the first place, just like their wheat which was one of the major reasons for the operation from the start. But Churchill was about to find out Fisher's true feelings on the issue. On January 25th, the First Sea Lord sent to the First Lord a memorandum, flatly stating his unhappiness with the entire operation, that it should not go forward without troops, and either way, no ships should be moved that were currently protecting the home island. But going one step further, Fisher wanted copies of this memo given to every member of the War Council. The first part of the note shocked Winston, who believed Fisher was with him stride for stride. But the second part bordered on insubordination. It was a matter between the First Lord and his next of command. It was airing of laundry that Winston didn't know was dirty until the last moment. And it simply wasn't done that way. Probably despite his nature, Winston remained calm. After all, this memo came from Fisher, his hero, and the hero of many others, and in some ways, his mentor. So instead of shouting, Churchill pulled up a chart that showed British and German naval strength in the North Sea, 
The Dardanelles operation would not affect Britain's safety in any way. Jellicoe agreed with this assessment, but Fisher remained where he was, on his own side, alone. The next day, Churchill found Fisher's resignation on his desk. The breach was done between the two men and could not be undone, so there was only one thing for it. Churchill took the memo to Asquith, and, lickety-split, the Prime Minister had Fisher before his desk. Controlling his anger far less effectively than Churchill, Asquith told Fisher the plan would stay as is, and he would stay where he was. The three men then changed rooms and joined the War Council. They covered many topics, including the Dardanelles, at which point Fisher told the room the Prime Minister knew how he felt on that score. Then the First Sea Lord rose, crossed the room, and stared out the window, his back to the astonished group of men. Kitchener rose and joined the Admiral at the window. But before the War Minister could say anything, Fisher mumbled that he was leaving the Admiralty. Kitchener was shocked, but then used his position, and, quite frankly, his intimidating personality, to tell Fisher that the plan was agreed to and would go forward. It was his duty to carry out his orders and not to derail the train, or, in this case, the convoy. The old man returned to his seat, and then Churchill asked everyone for their opinion of the campaign. Taking turns, the War Council members spoke up and talked about the advantages of controlling Gallipoli, the Dardanelles, and Constantinople. During this round-robin of military backslapping, the Prime Minister jotted a quick note to his mistress, Venetia, about the growing tension between Winston and his first sea lord. Whether this, the jotting down of a thought to a lover during an important meeting, was commonplace or not, I honestly don't know. But at this moment, with this couple, during this time of the war, it was. The Prime Minister told the young, though shallow beauty, everything that happened within the government. He was trying to impress her, to keep her interested with state secrets. But she was already looking around for another companion. The council broke up for lunch, and the Prime Minister took the opportunity to vent at Fisher. Fisher came out of the Prime Minister's office suddenly very enthusiastic about the Aegean campaign. He even offered up the Lord Nelson and the Agamemnon, two 1908 battleships, sitting peacefully at Scapa Flow. So, the planning continued. Problems arose and were solved. Most of the solving came from Churchill, who was sincerely trying to change the course of the war. That course had become slaughter, slaughter, and more slaughter, with nothing to show for it. And, like Antwerp, Churchill's personality put his stamp on the Dardanelles planning, even the War Council, the Prime Minister, came to see it as his show, and the man would pay a price for that. But to Winston, the situation was simple to read. France was bogged down, Russia was bottled up, and the German Navy, and they can't be blamed for this, refused to come out and fight the Royal Navy, which was sitting there, idle, in all its dominating glory. But Churchill's view was not perfect either. He believed the men around him were as competent and as experienced as he was. The problem was, they weren't. The German general Hindenburg later said British soldiers were, quote, lions led by donkeys, unquote. 
The truth was, some of the leaders were out for themselves, some were inept, many of the rest were simply way in over their heads. As the shooting part of the Dardanelles plan got closer, the news building up to it was good and bad. On February 9th, the War Council met and was astonished when Churchill informed them that the Greek premier had been turned away from his king and had offered up the island of Lemnos as a staging area for the naval forces. The council was elated. Four days later, the warships that would assault the Dardanelles were stationed at the mouth of the waterway. Then it all began to unravel. Henke questioned Churchill's belief that this operation could be carried out without troops, but Winston was simply going off Cardin's belief that it could be done. After all, he was the man on the spot, and military wisdom said to trust the person there and not someone far away staring at a map. But others were coming independently to that same conclusion. Memos began flying around like artillery shells, and as they landed on desks, the result was that Winston began to question this aspect of the operation. Wasn't everyone on the same page merely days ago? Apparently not. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When Fisher received a memo from another War Council member saying there's no point to this, Without troops, the first Sea Lord responded with, quote, Your paper is excellent, unquote, all in capital letters. By this point, Churchill didn't know which way was up and who was on his side. What's more, he wasn't sure what his position was anymore. He only wanted a victory in the East to cut Turkey in half and deliver a blow to the enemy coalition. So, if troops were needed, fine, let's scout around for the men. It was then, at that moment, a gift was dropped into Winston's lap. The 29th Division, which had been offered to Greece for a landing at Salonika, was rejected by the ever-changing Greeks. So now, here was a first-class division ready to help make a major change in the war. Excited, Asquith called for an emergency meeting of the War Council. It was as if a breath of life was breathed into the Council and the Aegean operation. Using the 29th for Gallipoli was approved by Kitchener, who would also throw in the Australians and New Zealand troops now in Egypt. Churchill was now directed to gather the necessary vessels to move 50,000 men. Kitchener then passed Winston a note that read, quote, You get through. I will find the men. Unquote. But then, again, the plan lost its way and it was by Kitchener's doing, but it was Winston's fault. Soon after the emergency meeting, Winston was in France when he offhandedly said to Sir John French that the Admiralty may be able to loan the army some of its troops. Again, this was informal and rather foolish, not that French knew of the former part. So, when the request came from French, who was always looking to resupply his losses, to the war office, 
word made it to KFK, who was keenly sensitive to anything happening with the army, especially on this scale, without his permission. Straightway, the war minister went to 10 Downing Street and lashed out at the prime minister, who, in return, explained this was the first he was hearing of it. So the storm was then directed, and rightly, at Winston. So now the war minister, who had been Churchill's friend, and the prime minister were both angry at the first lord. These things were went about in a certain way, just like with any other established body, and Churchill had crossed several lines. Again, without meaning to. Winston saw the grievous mistake he had made and tried to fix it, and his friendship with Kitchener. He wrote to the war minister on the morning of February 19th, but the cold shoulder of K&K remained. That afternoon, the war council met again, and Kitchener bluntly told everyone asunder that he had changed his mind. The 29th Division could not be released for the Dardanelles at this time. In fact, neither were the 30,000 Australian and New Zealand troops. The council was stunned, but Kitchener was emphatic. He ended with, he would think about it. Obviously, that didn't mean any time soon, because Winston brought up the issue four days later, to which the war minister replied that the war, especially the Russian front, was so fluid that the 29th had to be held in case it was needed to react. Besides, he added, wasn't this operation supposed to be a naval expedition, or was the First Lord going to lead troops at Gallipoli, like he did at Antwerp? That stung Winston, who could only reply that was not his intention. His intention was trying to guarantee success in the field, but K and K remained stubborn. When the next meeting came up, the council had to agree not to talk about the 29th's future until the next meeting, just so they could get through this one. But Winston had learned a thing or two from Fisher. He wanted his position stated for the record. Quote, Mr. Churchill said that the 29th Division would not make the difference between failure and success in France, but might well make the difference in the East. He wished it to be placed on the record that he dissented altogether from the retention of the 29th Division in this country. If a disaster occurred in Turkey owing to the insufficiency of troops, he must disclaim all responsibility." Unquote. The Prime Minister was equally vexed with his war minister, but was, at the same time, intimidated by the man. Asquith wrote again to his mistress that K of K was being, quote, very sticky, unquote, about the men. Quote, if K can be convinced, well and good, but to discard his advice and overrule his judgment on a military question is to take great responsibility. So I am anxious, unquote. I think we all know what Churchill would have done at this moment, if in the Prime Minister's shoes. Still, the Prime Minister could vacillate, the War Minister could hold a grudge, and his troops, but neither would stop Winston from using his own men, the Royal Navy Division, the men who had survived and hopefully learned some things at Antwerp. So, the 9,000 men, Auk Asquith among their number, were marched past the King and Winston, and then on their way to the eastern Mediterranean. With all said and half done, the battle for Gallipoli and the Dardanelles, for the Sea of Marmara and the Bosphorus, for Constantinople and the war in the east, 
began at 9.51 a.m. on February 19, 1915. The opening stage was to shell the Turkish forts on either side of the opening of the Dardanelles at Cape Hellas and Kumkal. Everyone was excited, but the Prime Minister was anxious, as his son would be fighting on land. But if the Navy did their job right, if Churchill did his job right, all would go well. That we will leave for later, but Ock Asquith would make it through the Dardanelles campaign though lose a friend that he would grieve for the rest of his life. But his grieving would only last a year, as he himself was killed among the trenches of France. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, just to let you know, because several people have written in, um, no, I will not be taking a break over the Christmas holidays. Um, I have to get out my two membership episodes, but other than that, we'll keep going. And next time we will um, finish off the Dardanelles and Churchill's life will be changed uh, forever. So for right now, I just want to say hello to my newest members, um, Mitch B. from Alberta, Canada. Stephen T. from Tyne and Ware in the UK, Joshua V. from Orchard Park, New York, and James J. from Novato, California, and Maxine T. Uh, I'd also like to thank Shannon C. for ordering a Churchill mug for John P. She's from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thank you very much, Shannon, and I'm sure John thanks you. And as far as people who have made donations, uh, I would like to thank Ezekiel S. from Argentina, John P. from Ontario, Canada, and Gerald M. from Lexington, Massachusetts. So thank you all. Um, again, I really do appreciate it. And it also allows me to justify working on this so much to the wife and kids. So again, just uh, thank you very much. I, I do appreciate it. The tour itinerary is almost done. And as soon as uh, Terrace has got that um, price and everything, he'll put it officially up on the website. There is a place right now that you can go to on geeknationtours.com and you can reserve a spot. And he'll email you once everything's done. So again, I just want to say thank you to him. I'm really excited about this. And once everything is up, um, I think you'll see a big difference, especially in price, to what would have been. So again, I hope I can see many of you on the tour and future tours. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And one last thing before I let you go, if you don't follow me on uh, Facebook or Twitter, which is fine, um, you might want to consider it just because I've been doing little trivia contests and the uh, winners get their choice of either a Churchill mug or a Roosevelt mug. So you might just want to take a look at that. Um, also, for those of you who are interested in mugs, I can normally get them to the UK in about six or seven days and within the States about three days. So if you wanted to order one for yourself or for someone else for Christmas, just uh, look on the website, let me know. You get, if you're in the continental U.S., you can just order it from the website. If you live anywhere else, just shoot me an email with where you live. I'll work out the price and get it back to you what it would cost. And if you want me to do it, I'll be happy to send it out as soon as I possibly can. So just trying to make your Christmas shopping that much easier. So again, thanks for listening, and may the fates play fair.